Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February 19th, 2016, and this is episode 1735 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday. That's right, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Monster Show of the Week, your questions with answers for the Expert Council. Got a great lineup for you this week. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We're going to go into a lot of different diverse topics. I've got some stuff for you, too, as well. I've got some stuff on business. I've got some stuff on interaction and working together and following up from this you know, theme we've been on this week with bullying. And a person that I responded to yesterday came back around and basically said, I'm sorry, I get it now. And I think there's a lot to learn about conflict resolution there. We'll take care of that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is for, here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey Guy, the actual one, the only Berkey Guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey Guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, Do not forget to get your premium membership, 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1735, because the episode is 1735. Alex Rugg has three for us. At tspwiki.com, I have Our Divided Nature and Divided Thinking. I have Paul Revere is here, because he was born in 1735. And I have uh, damning uh, the faint, damning with faint praise. <laughs> I like that one, but I'm going to read our divided nature and divided thinking because I think it'll fit well with some of the stuff I'm going to talk about today. Is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? This standard question is made by the standard made the standard by Carl von Linn. He is a Swedish botanist, a zoologist, and the father of taxonomy. The science of classifying organisms based on their similarities and differences. He separates nature into three uh, kingdoms, animals, vegetables, and minerals. He then subdivides the kingdoms and the classes, and, the, and then orders and families and so forth. This is a slightly different system from the one used by evolutionists in the modern day, but Carl has pointed the way. He will jolt the scientific world into a new way of thinking, a new way of dividing up the world in the years to come. Charles Darwin will propose a theory of evolution that he would have had difficulty expressing without the work done in 1735. In this same year, a French scientist will suggest it took two billion years for the world to be created uh, instead of the previous belief, 6,000 years. It's actually more like 4.5 billion years, but it's a start. My take by Alex Shrug, the Western thinking or Enlightenment thinking is so new and radical that when I read the debates of ancient scholars, it is as if I have been transported into an alien world. The ancients were just as intelligent as we are today, but we divide the world differently now. Is it a plant or an animal, big or small, hot or cold, square or round? What color is it? We categorize objects and ideas into smaller and smaller groups until we can make an assumption based on similarities. This new process allows us to ask important questions such as, if birds have feathers and birds fly, why does a bat fly but not an ostrich? If, if a Nazi and a communist are both socialists, why is one called a right-wing fascist but the other one's called a left-wing collectivist? 
whatever the answer to these questions, the miracle of modern thinking is it occurs to us to ask these questions in the first place. Enlightenment thinking has spread like a virus, but I assure you that when you get this virus, you are cured mostly. Um, I think a lot of us need this enlightenment thinking. I mean, we, we think of it as modern thinking, but that doesn't mean modern people do a lot of modern thinking. It's an interesting thing to ask, for for instance, why is a fascist considered right-wing and a socialist considered left-wing? Why? Well, because, see, both sides in the, the left-right paradigm, the dichotomy, need like an extreme example to insult each other with. That's why. When, when the real reality is our modern society is neo-fascist. We are, we are a classic neo-fascist society, and both the left and right want more of it. No, I don't, Jack. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. I mean, maybe you personally don't, but in general, people that support mainstream political candidates on either side, you're saying, I'd like some more neo-fascism, please. Why? Because we don't critically think. We don't actually pick apart the individual ideas. And it leads to a lot of division, and that makes us easy to control. See, the problem with the left-right paradigm is it's so perfectly done, it's so artfully done, that the two sides literally have seething hatred of each other. Now, I'm not talking about the politicians. right? To date myself, the politicians are Hawk Hogan and the Iron Sheik. They put on a good show in the ring, and then they smoke dope and haul ass in, in Hogan's vet. Okay? Get arrested for that. That happened back in the 80s, by the way, right? Uh, and that is the political theater. That's the ass clown circus. I'm talking about it, it, it's fascinating to look at people hate each other on Facebook that don't even know each other because you want guns, and that's evil, and it's going to kill children. But then that guy hates the other guy, not just because he wants to take his guns away, because you're an evil socialist and you're against capitalism, and the two sides don't even understand what capitalism is. They're not even using the same definition of the word that divides them. And they're not interested in hearing anything about how the other side thinks. They're not interested in understanding each other in the slightest bit. And it's because we don't even bother to try to understand each other anymore. Because it's real easy to just go, fascist, communist, you're both neo-fascists. You're both neo-fascists. If you look up the textbook, economic definition of fascism. What you will find is that in a fascist state, the state uses private industry and hands money to private industry and then sets that private industry up in such a way with a cooperative nature between the state and the private industry to use the divisions between the classes to further the goals of private industry and the state. And the state and private industry are seen as mediators between the classes so that they can mediate, which is also a way of saying agitate, and leverage the agitation to advance both of their goals. What makes the United States a neo-fascist state is we've just flipped it around. We've just, we've just flipped it around. Instead of the government giving the money to the corporations, now the corporations give the money to the government, and the government gives the corporations the contracts of classic fascism. But the, but the companies pay first. They write the legislation. They send experts, we call them lobbyists, to tell Congress. that the, the bills that are written today are not written by congressmen and senators. They're written by the corporations themselves. And when you want 
more prisons that are run by private companies to lock more people up for crimes that have no victim, and most conservatives vote for policies that do that, you're asking for more neo-fascism. And when you want more wealth redistributed, and all that wealth redistribution actually does is create a consumer element in the economy that large corporations can benefit from, and hell, the banks even get paid to print the food stamp cards now. And you're on the left, you're voting for more neo-fascism. So we have people completely divided ideologically that are perpetrating the exact same, same ideology with different marketing because we can't even get into political taxonomy at this point and understand what we think is so important to us. My take by Jack Spirico. Uh, next up, let me remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, if you want to help support the work I do, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more there, and uh, you'll find you can get great discounts and a lot of other really cool stuff for about 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, uh, and first responders like uh, EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll get the code back to you. If you've sent me an email like that and you haven't got a response, you need to email me again. Sometimes they slip through the cracks. I usually respond to all customer service emails within 48 hours. Sometimes on weekends that doesn't happen. But if you go one full workday and you don't hear back from me and it's a critical issue, it's an actual customer service issue, assume that the... The, the, the flying jack deletion monster accidentally deleted your shit because it does happen. TSPC in the subject line is the number one way to make sure I see your email. Email jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And remember, everyone, when you're on your phones and stuff and typing in your address or whatever because you haven't bookmarked our site, tspc.co. tspc.co will redirect you there. All right. Um, next up, I want to let you know I have released Meads of the Week, Episode 4. Really cool stuff. I'm doing a what I'm calling a wild sin, vin, and gin uh, mead, but the sin, vin, and gin is not in there yet. You'll have to tune in to Meads of the Week to see what that's all about. Uh, I've got another batch of uh, Meyer lemon mead going because we're going to be oaking the heck out of that. Some well-finished cherry meads and some other cool stuff, some tips for you, how to build a two-and-a-half-gallon fermenter uh, out of glass uh, for under 20 bucks, and a lot of other cool stuff, Meads of the Week. You might want to check that out. Uh, next up, if you're going to Permaculture Voices 3, remember I have a form where you can get on it. You'll be on my mail list. I did a little post for that last week. I'll have a link in today's show notes so you don't have to dig through and find it. Uh, just click that link, fill out the form, and uh, that way if we're going to have any kind of meetups or anything, I'll just be able to ping an email out there, and everybody will get it. And uh, remember, that's not a marketing email list. You have my word. I always keep my word to you guys. Uh, the day that PV3 ends, I'll just delete that list and, and we'll get on get on rid, rid of it. Okay, and you should come to Permaculture Voices 3 if you can. You're going to meet some really awesome people and learn a lot. Uh, next up, I do have the Work with Jack weekend happening tomorrow. I am going to shut down the registration for it uh, at 5 o'clock today because uh, that, that way we can um, have a total number of what we need to do for food because we're actually ordering food for this one just to make our lives a little easier. It's going to be awesome, brisket and sausage. Uh, we're going to be working on the aviary. It's going to be fun. Just wanted to throw that there as well. Um, next up, before I bring a, a council member on, I have follow-up to follow-up to do with you um, from Facebook in the Regenerative Agriculture uh, group on Facebook. And I'm doing this because... 
it's a, it just makes sense. I have a lot of you guys that want to be in business, okay? You want some sort of a business. And even though, you know, once again, if it's on regenerative ag, it's agriculturally based, when you see how to do something in business, specifically from how to market and sell in business, it does not matter what business sector that demonstration is in for you. you. It doesn't really matter. You should be able to apply the exact same logic to other sectors and niches. So if you haven't heard yesterday's show, the real short thing is I did an article on how to make money selling chickens as laying chickens. Instead of selling them as little baby chicks and competing with tractor supply at a couple of bucks a piece, grow your pullets out somewhere between 12 and 16 or even 20 weeks and sell them as almost ready to lay. Also building chicken tractors to go along with them and a complete breakdown of how to do that. And uh, chicken tractors that you would basically bolt together, they could go in the back of a pickup, you could sell them really, really easily to anybody because they could transport them easily. Put them together with basically bolts and, and washers and, and wing nuts. And it's really not that hard to do that if you want to. So one of the things that actually made that thing fly was, okay, so you're going to have these birds that are laying for you, and you're going to be hatching those eggs or letting a broody hen hatch the eggs for you. That's going to produce your birds that you're going to sell later as you know half-raised half birds. And, of course, you've got to feed everybody. You've got to feed the birds while they're growing. You've got to feed your, your laying flock. And then, of course, you're going to have the surplus. And we came up with a way to do this with three groups, three different breeds, five hens apiece, for you to have, uh, I think it was five or six dozen eggs personally for yourself, and then with a surplus of 20 dozen eggs a month. And I said, to, to make this fly, you have to sell those eggs for about $8 a dozen. But you can do that because you only need five customers that all commit to buying four dozen a month. And here's what happened. People on Facebook said, it works only on paper. There's no way this whole idea of raising pullets and selling them at 12 to 16 weeks works. And like 20 people popped up and said, yeah, well, we do it and it works just fine for us. We make money doing it. So that shut that down. But the other one was you can't sell chicken eggs for 8 bucks a dozen. That's crazy. Well, may I point out that organic eggs at the store are 6 bucks a dozen. And they're still factory farmed eggs. So you're only looking for a $2 premium. And you only need five customers to make this model work. But how do you get them? How do you get them? I'm going to show you right now. I'm going to just read the article I posted today in Regenerative Agriculture. And this is, I keep saying it, this is why you might want to get over there and be part of this group because this is the type of stuff we talk about, how to actually make a profit. How to sell chicken eggs for $8 a dozen. Recently I did this post. It was about raising pullets to sell, selling pre-built chicken tractors, and selling a small egg surplus as a super premium to fund feed. The two chief objections were, one, it only works on paper. This was debunked by quite a few saying, well, we already do it and it works. Two, you can't get $8 a dozen for chicken eggs. You just can't. I'm telling you, it can't be done. Never going to happen. Well, if you believe you can't, you can't, but others can, and I am going to show you how right now simply convey value. Please note, this is a very small-scale model. You can't do it with 200 dozen a month. It's I was very clear about that in my last post, and I'm actually beginning to doubt that's the case. I think maybe you could if you really wanted to, but let's just stick with this, okay? Um, but I'm restating it here. This is, this is for a person producing about 20 dozen surplus eggs a month who is doing it in a way that produces a superior egg. If your product is not truly top-end, first fix that. The key is you only want five customers. Every customer must be a premium customer. 
The customer must earn the right to qualify for a premium product. Are you starting to get it yet? Before I begin, I do not want this to only help you sell eggs. I want it to help you sell anything. So two definitions. Marketing, telling a story that creates interest. Sales, transfer of belief. Consider those as we look for one version of the ad I would use to find my five premium customers. Headline, local farmer seeks five and only five customers. Or you might have some other alternatives like local farmer seeks long-term relationship. Beyond organic producer can only take five customers. Eggs you will want to pay more for if you qualify to buy them, etc. Body of the ad. We are a local farm that produces only 20 dozen super premium eggs a month for sale. We are looking for just five customers to purchase four dozen eggs a month routinely from us. We want to truly know our customers and know that we are feeding them and their children the highest quality product possible. Our birds are fed the highest quality feed available in our area and, and then put a feed link, whoever you're feeding there, for information on it. They are raised on pasture and moved daily. Frankly, they are spoiled chickens that live a carefree life very few people could dream of, and that's what it takes to produce a product of this quality. Pictured below is an organic egg from the local market next to one of our own. The organic egg on the right is the most premium egg you can buy in a store for about $6 a dozen. On the left is our egg. Do you see the difference in the yolk color? And this sells eggs, guys, because your eggs are golden orange and their eggs are pale yellow. All right? So let's keep going. The reason for this is simple. Nutrients. While store-bought organic eggs are from chickens fed organic feed, uh, from there it's still basically factory farming. The birds are confined indoors and never eat a real diet. Our birds are on pasture daily. They eat seeds, weeds, and insects. And they take dust baths. They warm themselves in the sun. They take naps in the shade. In fact, we welcome you to come bring your children to see our spoiled birds. We are selling our eggs for $8 a dozen, and we only want five regular customers. We're going to take the first five people who agree to buy four dozen a month and lock them in as long-term partners in our efforts to help restore local agriculture to our area. Our birds are part of a holistic system that is being used to restore the health of the land we manage. So much so, they now produce a surplus of the healthiest eggs you and your family can find in our area. Please contact us at blank to see if any of our five positions remain available. If you want to take a position contingent upon a farm visit, we will hold your spot for seven days to accommodate you. The program will be incredibly convenient. You can simply come by the farm once a month and pick up all your eggs for that month. This means your eggs will be one to eight days old when you pick them up, the epitome of fresh. Did you know many store-bought eggs, even organic ones, are more than 60 days old when you buy them? Again, we're only going to be taking five customers. Please contact us at fill-in-the-blank to see if any of our five positions are still available. Again, if you want to take a position contention upon a farm visit, we'll hold your spot for seven days to accommodate you. Learn about us at link. Pictures. So pictures below the ad or in the ad. Here post the egg side-by-side chef-level cooking shots, well-placed pictures of your birds, kids feeding them, dogs lying beside them, like 25 or more pictures. Run this ad on Craigslist and any other sites. Make it a blog post, then pin every single individual picture to Pinterest. If you only get two customers, read, run, or rewrite the ad. Remember, you only need five or, say, ten on a small scale to do this. If you have to run an ad like this twice a month to get your five, so the F what? At that point, you're done and likely have people on a wait list just in case someone falls out. You never need to sell an A again. Just collect them and let them be picked up and paid for. Now, you're not going to get rich on that, but remember, that was that was actually what I used to call the sales of gas money close. 
right? That's money to feed all the other birds. That's all that is. Your, your revenue model is in selling pullets and tractors, and it's still a side business, a piece of a farm business. But that's how you should structure any business. There should be, you can't always kill an elephant, right? So there's a gun called a drilling, right? And a drilling usually is uh, a double rifle over a shotgun barrel. These were African hunting guns, especially before a lot of the modern repeaters. So it's a break-action gun, and you might have two very heavy for caliber you know, rounds, big stuff for like knocking down uh, cape buffaloes and lions and elephants. And then there'd be like a 12- or a 20-gauge barrel underneath it. Now, that had a lot of utility if you were going into the, the, the bush after a leopard attacking you that was wounded. But it was also because when a partridge got up or a guinea fowl or something, you could, you could shoot it. And a lot of the, the, the hunters of the time that were there professionally, you know, they lived off the land. Well, you can't shoot an elephant every day. You can't shoot even a wildebeest every day. So sometimes you need small game. So you have this utility, right? That's what the drilling was. So businesses need that level of utility. They need multiple income streams and it, different income streams that feed the business models of other major streams of income. So if I can make enough money with this, and I can, to feed all my layers that are actually producing my pullets and feed all my pullets during the time of year that I'm growing them out, then my profit margin on everything else is pretty much close to 100%. Because I'm offsetting the expense with a small individual niche component, and because that's all that it is, I have to set it up in a way that requires no real time or effort. So I want it to be small. I want it to scale. Now, I might scale it to double if I double the size of the, the main operation, but I'm going to keep those intrinsically linked. I only have to manage five customers. If I market that effectively, I'll probably have three or four going, man, if anybody ever quits. you know. So somebody, I move in. I don't want to do it anymore. We fell on hard times. Sorry to hear it. Um, you know, we'll put you at the bottom of the list if you ever want to come back. Pick up the phone. Hey, Tom, uh, we had somebody drop out. Do you want their position? You do? Great. Uh, you can pick your first uh, batch up on Wednesday next week. Is that going to work for you? Great. You know where we're at? Okay, excellent. Done. Done. Right? Go out, pick the eggs up, stick them in the cart, and throw them in the refrigerator, write Tom on them. Done. It has to be that simple. It absolutely has to be because it's only a piece of a business. You need to think about, you guys who want to be in business for yourself, how do you create these multiple components in a business that feed onto each other? You know, when I started this podcast to show how this is a replicating pattern, I came out with a sponsorship program. My sponsors pay me in total, in total, about $25,000 a year. I can't make a living on $25,000 a year paying for hosting and servers and bandwidth and, and, and busting my ass, frankly, as much as I do to get things done for the show. It, it, it's not worth it if I only make $25,000 a year. But the sponsorship fed the ability to meet the needs of the site, and that allowed me to roll out the Member Support Brigade program, which actually is what funds the actual income from the site. It's the same thing. And how did I set up the sponsorship program? You got a sticker. You got to say you want to be here for a year. If you want, I never make anybody stay. Nobody leaves, right? But you got to stay for a year. You got to want to stay for a year. You got to go on automatic billing. You give me your banner. I make commercials for you. I run them once a week on the show. Your banners rotate on the site. So it literally takes me 10 minutes a week to handle that portion of the revenue from the site. 10 minutes a week. 
I got one customer that pays by check. Everybody else is on PayPal, and the customer that pays by check, because of the gun ammo issue thing, the PayPal's a, a, a problem for them. So that person, once a year, I have to invoice them and get a check. That See, this is the same thing. Eggs, podcast, blogging, it's all the same, guys. That's your business lesson for the day. If you want to keep getting business lessons, even if you're not an ag person, come on over to Regenerative Agriculture. That's what we're all about. I want to say one more thing before I get to our first call or our first question for a guest. Um, somebody on that thread said, so, so we're only concerned with selling food to rich people and screw poor people, basically? Um, okay. On some levels, the answer to that question is actually yes, and on some other levels, it's no. I very much want poor people in this country to eat better quality food. I really do. But let me just be completely blunt. The level of poverty you're talking about, those people are all on food stamps, and I don't take those. Okay. Another thing is, at one point, we had chickens here, and we weren't really trying to make money off. We just had a whole ass load of eggs. And we were selling eggs for three bucks a dozen, and no poor people came and bought them. And there's poor people all around here that knew we were selling. Nobody, that's less than you pay for them in the store. But when you go buy them in the store... You get to use that fancy freedom card that you get with everybody else's money on it, okay? But I, I, I still want to make a difference there. But the way you do that is you demonstrate how to build a profitable business and you hire people who actually want to work and empower them to become entrepreneurs themselves and then spring off of you and go start their own firm. And I am the only employer I know in the world who purchased copies of Tim Ferriss' four-hour work week and gave them to my employees. Nobody else in the world is that effing crazy I am. And it's paid dividends because those people that are successful now that are in my network that appreciate that. Okay. So, so don't tell me that you have to be donating money to be philanthropic. It's actually the lowest form of philanthropy. The highest form of philanthropy is not donating money or donating stuff or giving to others. It's empowering others to not need philanthropy in their lives, to become self-sufficient and independent. Now, this, the part of it that's, yeah, I'm only concerned with selling to people who have money. Okay, I sell a product that costs money, so I need customers with money. That's that's logic. I also sell a premium product. I sell a premium product at a premium. So I'm going to sell to a customer that, that qualifies for that product. That's not anti-poor. That's effing reality. And, and somebody said, it's like a 500% markup. What space aliens are probing your brain, dude? 500%? A 500% markup selling a chicken egg for 8 bucks. Store-bought organic eggs are $6. They come out of a factory system that is one of the most efficient in the world, and they're sold at low margins. There's not high margins on that product. When you're selling a product like that, you probably have $4 in it. Most people I know that are selling chicken eggs have about four bucks in it. If they sell for six, they make two dollars. That would be four doubled. That's a hundred percent markup. But that doesn't take your labor into account. That doesn't take the work into account. That doesn't take into account the fact that you're, it's a small piece of business. Anyway, people like that, I don't think I can help, so I'm going to let that go. Let's go ahead and get our first question out for an expert council member, even though we're like a half hour into the show now. And this is one that comes up all the time. Uh, and I talk about it quite a bit, but I'm interested to hear John's professional approach to this. 
It's a question on saving versus investing. Like we, John and I both teach, like when you have like $2,000, you don't need to be worrying about what to invest in. You just need to put that somewhere safe and keep throwing money in there. But the question is, well, when have I thrown enough money in and to start actually investing? John, what say you on this topic? Shane has a great question, and he wants to know how much money you need in savings before you can start investing in the stock market. Now, if you listen to people in the financial industry, for the most part, they'll tell you that you don't need any savings at all, that you can get started right away with whatever you have or just minimal contributions. You see, in my opinion, the financial industry tells you that, and they promulgate that myth because that's how they make money. Wall Street makes money on transactions. And so the more people that they can get to invest in the stock market or to, to buy bonds or annuities or whatever insurance program they're trying to hustle or peddle, that's how they make commissions. And so they want everybody to believe that they're an investor. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that if you want to build wealth, it's a simple equation, and it's based on three things. You have to earn money, you have to save money, and then you have to invest money. But you can only invest and put that money to work when it's sufficiently large enough. Because if you're starting with a very small investment portfolio, it's almost impossible to make money. Think of it this way. Imagine you were going out into your backyard and you were going to build a shed or a chicken coop. And you had your two-by-fours and your two-by-sixes and your nails and your shingles and all those things. And I handed you a 20-ounce claw hammer. Well, you could estimate the amount of time it would take you to build that shed. And you'd be able to accomplish it. And if instead of giving you a 20-ounce hammer, I handed you a pneumatic nail gun, you'd be able to finish that job in probably a quarter of the time and with much less physical effort put into it. And that's because you have a more efficient tool. Now, on the other hand, if I handed you a five-ounce tack hammer, no matter how hard you tried, you'd never be able to build that shed. Well, investing in the stock market is the same way. If you have a very large portfolio, it doesn't guarantee your success, but it makes it much more easier, just like that nail gun makes it easier than using a standard hammer. But if you have a really small portfolio, well, just like that little tack hammer, doesn't matter how much effort you put into it, you're just never going to make any money. You've heard Jack and I use the illustration of if you only have a $1,000 to invest and you get a 10% return, which, by the way, is an excellent rate of return, well, that's only going to be $100. Well, to make that extra marginal $100, your time and effort would have been probably much better spent working extra overtime or getting a second job or cutting grass or delivering pizzas or training yourself or getting educated so that you can get a promotion at work or move into a different career field or start your own business. You want to put your effort where it gets the most results. Now, I'm definitely not discouraging people from investing in the stock market. It's how I've built my wealth and it's what I do for a living. But I also don't want to create a false sense of hope or security or play into people's greed and, and build on the hype that everybody can just go into the stock market and make money. Most people can't. One of the reasons is they don't have the skill. The other reason is they don't have enough money. So directly to Shane's question, what delineates a saver from an investor? You know, how much of a portfolio do you need to truly be able to go into the stock market and be successful? Well, I've thought long and hard about that question because I get it an awful lot. And here's a general rule of thumb that I've come up with. 
I think that your savings portfolio should be large enough to at least be able to produce the same amount of money that you as a saver are contributing to it. So, for example, let's say that you're saving $500 a month. That would be $6,000 a year. That's how much as a saver you're contributing to your net worth. Well, for you to be an investor, your portfolio should be spinning off at least $6,000 in revenue. That's not a hard and fast rule, but I think it at least gets your thinking in the right direction. And the reason I say that is that your money should be working at least as hard as you are. And if it's not, then it goes back to that illustration of building the shed, and you're not using a claw hammer, you're using a little bitty tack hammer, and you're never going to be successful. So the best way to gauge this is to ask yourself, is my money working at least as hard as I am? So how large of a portfolio would it take to spin off $6,000 a year? Well, it all depends on your rate of return, you know, what the interest rate is. So what's a reliable rate of return? Well, it all depends on how good of an investor you are. The historical average that the financial industry likes to use is generally around 8%. Sometimes they'll go extremely high and they'll go in excess of 12%. But that's simply not realistic. If you go out over the last 100 or 150 years, yes, the stock market will generate about 8%. And in fact, over the last five years or so, it's generated a little bit less than, I'd say, 8% nominally. People tend to remember the really good years, like 2013 was an excellent year. The market returned about 30%. But you know what? It was either flat or negative in two of the last five years. And if you go back to the year 2000, so you go back about 16 years, we've lived through the dot-com bubble that blew up in 2000, the housing and financial bubble in 2008, and right now we're experiencing a bubble in energy and commodities. So the nominal rate of return on the S&P 500 since around the year 2000 has only been about 4%, and that includes dividends. So the amount of money you can expect to make is very subjective, But for our example, let's just use that historical 8%. So if Shane was saving $6,000 a year and he wanted his portfolio to spin off at least that amount, you'd take $6,000, divide it by 8%, and that'll give you a number of about $75,000. So Shane, for a quick rule of thumb, I would tell you that until you have at least $75,000 to invest in the stock market, you're probably not an investor, you're just a saver. So, for example, if your savings only consisted of $20,000 to spin off that $6,000 a year, you'd have to get a rate of return of 30%. Well, I know there's a lot of people out there that sell investment programs and they try and teach you to trade options and flip real estate and do all these different things, and they'll try and convince you that you can get a 30 or 50 or 100% return rate. But I'm here to tell you that my 30-plus years of investing in the stock market and building my own wealth, that's highly unlikely. You don't find professional hedge fund managers on Wall Street consistently returning anywhere near 30% on an annual basis. So don't believe the Wall Street hype. You can't just take a few thousand dollars and become a successful investor with that. It's like anything else. There's no shortcuts. It takes hard work and discipline. Well, hey, Shane, thanks for your question. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market analysis and my general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealth Studying Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. You know, my answer is a little different. I throw a number around at $30,000 all the time. And I think at that point, to me, you have enough income uh, potential to make it worth investing. And I also think you have enough at stake to pay enough attention 
to safeguard your money. But actually, my number gets a lot closer to John's number in how much money you have because I wouldn't say put 100% of your money in the market, and I believe you should have at least a 90-day to six-month emergency fund. If you make $80,000 a year, a six-month emergency fund is not a genius to figure out. It's $40,000. You, you you want that money safeguarded, 100% safe, or at most you want it in, in very low risk and somewhat low return, but at least you're getting something for your money uh, situations accessible. You might put it into something like staggered bonds or CDs where there's a portion of it available every 30 to 90 days. I had a guy the other day say, well, if I'm just going to save my money for now, how do I get some return on it? 90-day government bond staggered. So take a third of your money, buy a 90-day bond, and then wait for the next uh, 30 days to go and do it again and then do it again. He said, well, I'm holding government debt. Well, cash is government debt, so what's the difference? <laughs> I mean, you, you got to think about that. That's what the banks do. That's how the banks hold their short-term money and short-term paper. So that would be a way to do that. Um, if, 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 if U.S. government bonds are worthless, so are U.S. government dollars. So there, there's, there's, there's no benefit to to being afraid of that investment. Even though I don't like what debt does or I don't like loaning money to the government, I, I'd rather loan money to the government and get a little more interest than loaning my money to the bank. Okay? Um, so I'm still in that kind of that same number. I'm just not going to put it all in there. And, and John might say, well, that's fine, but you should have your 90-day emergency fund and then you might... You know, and I, I can understand that too, but... I'm okay with people beginning to create a diversified investment portfolio with about 30 grand. Uh, next question is for Stephen uh, Solar Harris. We have a solar question for Steve today where he won't be talking about light. Well, he might talk about lightsabers, but in this case, not needing one. Because uh, this is about using solar to create heat using soda cans. The guy that asked the question must be from like uh, Midwest or something, though, because he called them pop cans. We don't call them pop cans out here. We call them Coke cans in Texas, right? So soda cans was when I was in Pennsylvania. Here we call them Coke cans. So your standard conversation in Texas goes like this. Hey, you want a Coke? Yep. What kind? Dr. Pepper. Here you go. I'm serious. We really do that down here. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from Stephen Harris on building solar heaters out of aluminum cans. Hi, this is Steve Harris from the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question today. I got a great one, guys. Just something I love. I was wondering if Stephen can talk about solar air heaters, a.k.a. DIY soda pop can heaters. I'm curious if they're worth building one as a supplementary source of heat for my home, which is currently only heated with an oil furnace. The house is 30 years old with good insulation and has no trees casting shade on it. I got sunshine from 8 a.m. to sunset. I live in eastern Ontario. I was going to build one as a heat riser component for a solar dehydrator, thinking maybe it could cost, it could be built as a module component, use the heat source in the winter for the house and move to the solar dehydrator. Okay, no, no, stop, 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 stop. If you're going to make a solar heater, make a solar heater and put it into your window of your house and let the free solar hot air come into the house. You're going to build a dehydrator, then build a separate dehydrator. You're talking about building this stuff with glass. I, I can show you how to get all of the glass you could possibly want for free. I've done this for tens of thousands of people. It's in the book, Sunshine to Dollars, at knowledgepublications.com. 
costs like twelve ninety five, and I tell you in the book exactly how to get all of the free glass in any town that you live in in the United States for free. They will hand it to you. They will call you and say, come pick it up. And you can come and pick it up, and you can use it for whatever you want for solar. Solar heat is real solar energy. Solar photovoltaic electric is the worst thing that ever happened to the solar industry because people think it's a holy grail, and it's not. It sucks. It has a real limited, you know, area of operation. You buy an electric solar panel. You're not going to get your money back from it for decades, 30 years of out in the sunshine. It has to do with how much energy it takes to make the panel. If you build a solar hot air heater, even from soda cans, or you use it, and I got in Sunshine of Dollars, I'll show you how to make solar heaters and solar ovens, and you will get your money back on those in days. Literally, if you build it with free stuff and or stuff from Home Depot, you can get your money back on a solar heater in days. The second you put it into your window and that solar hot air starts coming into that room and heating that room, that month you will have a lower gas bill or heating bill from the power company. That month. That is how quickly solar Heating, solar hot air will save you money and it really works. Okay, that is real solar energy. Now the methods of making these, you can uh, make a box, put glass on it, inside of it, you know, what he's talking about, soda cans, is you, you cut the tops and bottoms out of the soda cans and you line them up. You make these aluminum soda can tubes and the air goes from the bottom of the solar hot air heater up through the soda cans that you have painted black with a dollar per spray can of black paint at Home Depot and it goes up the cans and it goes out of the top of the cans and into the house, okay? It's called a solar can hot air heater. It's good. It works. There's better. My book that I have uh, called The Complete Handbook of Solar Air Heating Systems shows you how to make better solar hot air heaters for your house. However, if you don't want to spend any money and you want to experiment with this, go to YouTube and look up solar uh, soda can pop heaters, look up solar heaters. You will find a plethora of great videos for nothing that will show you how to make a solar heater. Don't try to make the perfect solar heater the first time. Just shut up, go watch the videos and make one and put it into your window and go, God, this is great. And then you can go, okay, let me see how I can perfect this. I can get Steve's book. I can watch some more videos on YouTube. There's some uh, documents on the web I can search for, and I can get that, you know, talk about this from other people and government agencies. Okay, I can do this, and I can improve it. I can put a temperature controller device on it and have it control the air being sent through it. I can do this. I can do that. But just go build the first one, people. Just go build the first one and feel the magic of free solar hot air coming into your house. It is magical. I can't emphasize that enough. So even if you start with a solar 
uh, with a soda can pop one. It is fabulous. I highly recommend this. I will help you in any way you need help. Send me the photos. I'll, you know, help you perfect it, answer any questions. The one thing you gotta know with solar heaters, it's got to be airtight, no leaks. This means using silicon to put the glass onto the wood box. It means siliconing, siliconing and or putting up the cracks in the corners of the wood joints. It means that you paint over them so they're sealed. You can't have any air leaks in a solar heater. Now, solar ovens for solar dehydrating. I make one out of a freezer and a piece of sliding glass door glass in Sunshine of Dollars. And I make a reflector made out of cardboard and aluminum foil with Elmer's glue holding it on. And I baked like six loaves of bread and two cakes simultaneously plus some biscuits. And it could have done 20 breads, uh, loaves of bread at once in there. Um, I have the uh, book I sell called Solar Cookery. It shows you how to make a clone of the sun oven. The best oven, solar oven you can go buy with your money is the sun oven. And it just go Google it and you'll find it. It's like 340 bucks, but... I mean, it shows up, it works, it's perfect, you didn't have to do anything. If you want to build one, you can get the book Solar Cookery, or you can go onto the web and find designs for solar ovens. Okay, they're good stuff. Solar ovens are also magical. The first time you put one out into the sunshine with a loaf of bread into it, you come back to it two, three hours later, and that loaf of bread is all done and everything, you just like, you just go, wow, this is great. It makes soups, it makes stews, it pasteurizes water, you can use it as a dehydrator, as a desiccator. You can use it for cooking. You can use it for baking. It's magical. The thing is, it's not like a regular oven. Even if the solar heater is only at 250 degrees, it will still bake a loaf of bread. It might take two or three hours at 250 instead of 350 to bake the loaf of bread. 350 in your oven in your house, 30 minutes for a loaf of bread. Out in the sunshine, two, three hours at a lower temperature. Same amount of time if it's at a higher temperature. It depends upon the time of the year. Your outside ambient, the angle of the sun, the angle of the solar cooker and everything. But it will bake. You just have to learn that solar ovens are a little different. And so what if it takes two, three hours? You go inside, you do stuff with the family, the wife, the kids. You go on errands, you go to work, you come back, it's done. The solar oven's not going to burn whatever it's cooking. So, um, it, this is, I love it. This is a great question, great subject. It is really on point. This is what you should be doing. I just sent out an email to everyone about solar energy and the books that I have and how wonderful and magical it is. Guys, I love this area of solar energy. Again, this is real solar energy. This is the solar energy we should have been working on since the 1960s. Every house in a winter zone should have solar hot air heaters up on the roof built into the roof dumping free solar heat into even if it's only half your house every time the sun shines. It should be built into every single house in this country because it's so cheap, it's so simple, and it works. You will get your money back in, you know, you get your money back that month on the solar heater that you built. 
This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel reminding you that all of the stuff I have done with Jack, all of my free stuff, including stuff on solar energy, is at Stephen1234.com. And don't forget to check out the new videos I just kicked out at Energy1234.com. Go read the reviews from people just like you. They love it. It's classic stuff from me. You will use it so quickly and so easily. Love it. So this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. I love this subject. If you can't tell, call in some more questions. Give me some more solar questions and I'll take care of you. Thank you. Bye. Good stuff from Steve. I got that one for him. I thought he's going to be so happy when I send him this. He really, because he, he really loves solar. He just likes to make heat with it instead of electricity because it is a, a much more usable product with a much better ROI. Um, this is this is something you can do. And if you live somewhere where it gets cold but the sun shines, it's something you should do. Um, this winter's been so mild here, it was certainly not one of the things going to make it on my project list. But if I still lived in Pennsylvania, I'd probably have a couple of these heat in my house. I, I kind of wish I would have known back then with all the money I put into heating uh, that I could have done something like that. Anyway, that's why we do this show, so you can learn cool things just like that. And Sunshine of Dollars is probably one of the best books you can add to your library. You can get it from Steve. I'll put a link directly where you can get it today in the show notes in addition to his normal link in the show. Anyway, um, this question's for Nick Ferguson. Guy says he has a seven-year-old lemon tree and a three-year-old satsuma tree in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I want to graft with other citrus varieties, especially grapefruit. Which tree would be better to graft, and what's the best way to do this? I should be able to get cuttings from the neighborhood. And this is from Paul. Hey, Nick, what about grafting citrus, man, for one of your uh, fellow Louisianans? Hey, Paul and all you TSP listeners, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty here with another expert counsel call and answer. This week is about grafting citrus. And I've only worked with citrus a little bit, so I did a little digging for verification on whether or not the advice I was going to give is good stuff. So um, I do have some good info for you. First of all, I'd try grafting onto the lemon tree just because you're likely to have more limbs available to graft onto with it being an older tree. You just have more there to work with, so more uh, more opportunity for success. As for how to graft, I have a good link with some how-to information on it on grafting citrus with a tea budding method. And the other method commonly used with citrus is a cleft graft. Now, sadly, it's too difficult to explain how to do those grafting techniques clearly. Um, but if you do a YouTube search, I'm sure you're going to be able to come up with some great examples for how to do either one of those methods. I'd look up tea budding citrus and follow those instructions. Again, I wish I could explain it well enough over audio, but you really need to see pictures of what is going on in order to have some success with this. But here are some tips. Use the thinnest blade you can get. It's best if the blade is bevel ground, which is uh, sharpened only on one plane, so that it looks like a chisel. Um, and the reason for that is that it will cut a flat line. It'll cut a flat edge. But if you're going to do this on a budget, get a utility knife, you know, just one of those uh, box cutter knives. Wash it to make sure there's no oils on the blade, 
and make sure you don't touch the cut material or else you'll transfer oils from your skin to the wood and reduce your chances of a good take on your graft. Now, I like to use parafilm for the grafting tape, but you can even go so far as to use a strip of plastic grocery bag or Teflon tape if you're bootstrapping your grafting adventures. The nice thing about parafilm is that it allows the the bud to come right through the tape, allowing you to be a lot sloppier with how you apply the tape. And that's a really good thing when you're new to the skill. So practice a bunch of times before you use rare or limited scion or rootstock. That's another good tip. Now, I answered your specific questions, but I want to bring something up and maybe save you some time and hassle. I would prefer that you go find some citrus rootstock. It's called bitter orange or trifoliate orange or just trifoliate citrus. If you if you buy some of that rootstock or just find someone from a local grower, you can graft onto your rootstock and make a whole bunch of those. You can pot them all up, keep the best ones, and sell the rest. The reason why you do that is because it will be hard to keep a citrus tree balanced in production and growth vigor with those different cultivars all on one tree. You know, you'll have an orange growing off this way and a lemon here and a grapefruit, and one of those is going to grow faster than the others, and when it grows faster, it gets bigger, and then the others slow down, and you end up with the whole tree being dominated by one of those cultivars. And that might be a good thing, depends on if that's the cultivar you really like. But it ends up, it normally ends up in some really funky looking trees. So you're almost invariably going to end up with that single graft dominating the tree and the others languishing and barely producing. But if you just want to experiment and play around with it, have at it, man. Um, so that's all I got. Best of luck and stay tuned to my new podcast, Homegrown Liberty, because I'm going to be doing a show all about starting up your own backyard nursery. It might actually be a couple shows. We're in the second month of this new podcast, covering lots of homesteading, gardening, and nursery-type topics so far, rocking and rolling. Man, keep the questions coming. Everyone from the TSP listening audience, y'all have a great weekend. Good stuff from Nick, and I definitely recommend you check out his podcast, Homegrown Liberty. I'd like to congratulate Nick. He's uh, just recently published his eighth episode. I think he's doing his show weekly. Uh, that is uh, is an accomplishment. Once you get rolling with podcasting, putting out a show a week is is not that hard. When you're starting, though, from the beginning, it takes a lot to find your groove and be able to produce a show. Um, I, I say that as someone that's produced 1,700-plus uh, shows at this point on a daily basis. And uh, I realize for someone like Nick that's running a consultancy practice in a small farm, it's 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 a difficult thing to get into. Not from a standpoint of it's not technologically hard, uh, but being an on-air personality and being entertaining and being able to hold people's attention and make them want to stick around, it takes some work. And uh, he's doing a great job. So check out Homegrown Liberty. Next question that I have today is uh, for Chef Keith Snow, and I, you know I've got two this month for Chef Keith that for a change, aren't really going to make us hungry because they're more on hardware than, I guess, cooking software, which, of course, uh, would be the, the, the food 
rather than the, uh, so that'd be like the foods, the software, and like the utensils or the hardware. This question is for Chef Keith on kitchen knives. My wife and I are looking to get a set of kitchen knives and are willing to spend around 250 bucks at the moment. If there isn't a set of knives you can recommend at that price range, perhaps you could recommend some different brands that you would trust that would give us a goal to save for. We are not professionals, but I believe in getting quality tools that will last, having proper tools while we develop our culinary skills. Ryan, so Chef Keith, what say you on cutlery, man? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow. I wanted to answer Ryan's question about knives. Now, investing, and I did say investing, not spending. Investing in a good set of knives is something that you'll definitely not regret. And most of the audience that's listening to my voice now tends to be, dare I say, a lot of preppers and a lot of people that are interested in in um, buying things once or at least buying something that can be maintained. Now, if you get a piece of crap set of knives from Walmart or uh, somewhere else, and I see people do this all the time, they fall, you know, QVC and all that. Oh, look, I got a whole block, 32 knives and all, and it was, you know, $97 and I could pay for it over six months. Those are crap knives, and you don't want to have crap knives. Now, I'm going to give you a silly little analogy, and, and it's to point out that um, in cooking, you need good equipment. Now, I grew up playing ice hockey. I played from time I was a puny little kid all the way up into college, Division II college hockey. Imagine that. Um, and I got my butt kicked, and that was the end of my my hockey career. But in growing up um, and playing, you know, we were never wealthy when I was growing up. So I oftentimes had pretty beat-up equipment. I'd been playing a long time. And we'd always go into, you know, you're in a locker room and you see these kids come in there and you could tell, you know, they pull up in the Mercedes and shiny helmet, new gloves, brand new skates, every, not a, you know, their clothes, their, their uniforms didn't smell. I never even washed the stuff. I threw it in the damn bag and that was it. But those are the kids we picked on because even though they had all this shiny stuff, most of them weren't worth a darn out on the ice. And that's a sport where, you know, the equipment didn't make the the player. You know, you still had to have really good skills. Now, you flip-flop that over to cooking, and I'm just going to tell you, you will not, and I've seen this firsthand. I've been cooking for 25 years or more, and if I go into somebody's house and they've got crappy cookware and bad knives, not only will it be a miserable experience, but the results are going to be lousy. And it's very easy to paint the picture with cookware. If you've got thin um, aluminum, cheap cookware, you can't sear foods properly, you've got hot spots, things burn in one area, they're not cooked in the other. I see this all the time with cheap cookware and certainly with lousy cutlery. So to be good in the game of cooking, you need good equipment. Now, uh, again, you mentioned about $250. That's going to put you... Um, in a nice position because you're going to be able to afford some of the top brands. And having spent a lot of years in culinary media, um, I've done hundreds of videos on YouTube. If you check out my YouTube channel, Chef Keith Snow, just search that on YouTube. You'll see a lot of videos there. I also had the privilege of doing some PBS TV shows and some cable TV shows. <clears throat> so I spent a lot of time in a uh, culinary media situation. And because of that, uh, people don't realize the amount of equipment that's needed um, to, to pull that off. You can't have one pot and you need three of the same pot. That way, in between what they call swap outs, you can bring the new pot and not have, not have to have somebody you know in a sink washing it or same thing with cookware and cutting boards. So most of the things that I have 
uh, number one, they were provided by manufacturers because when you do this type of work, they, they'd like to get their, their stuff on the air. And I would usually, um, secure, you know, a cookware sponsor to, um, provide the cookware and, you know, their name would be in the credits, that sort of thing. But I wouldn't be able to switch halfway through. So consequently, I spent many years using the same, um, brands for different projects, if that makes sense. So I got to use a lot of different cookware, a lot of different knives. I'm just going to rattle off some knife brands. Wusthof. There's two major players in the German knives, Wusthof and Henkels. And uh, I think Wusthof is the better brand there. Henkels used to be really good. I've got some older Henkel knives, but as they've kind of you know, worked their way down into every single store in the world, the quality is, is not uh, held up. So Wusthof and Henkels. And Wusthof is a, it's a German knife and it's a pretty heavy duty German knife. And I always like to give the analogy, you know, the, the, the Toyota Camry, you shut the door on a Toyota Camry, clink. You shut the door on a, you know, BMW 740, clunk. You know, they're, they're precise. They're heavy duty. They're, they're going to last a long time. You can sharpen them many, many, many times and the, the workability and, and long life is there. What they do lack though is, um, a little bit of elegance and flash. And since I was talking about cars, um, <clears throat> think about, you know, a Maserati. It's, it's a uh, flashy and it makes a great noise. It's got a great color and handles well. Um, and that would bring me over to a knife like Global, which is actually a Japanese brand. The Global knives, to look at them, if you put a Global next to a traditional, you know, German chef's knife, they're, it's night and day. They don't even look like the same equipment. They're very, they're kind of, uh, a little modern looking and they're flashy. It's all one piece of metal. It's got these little rubber bumper things in the handle. But when you pick it up, that's when the big difference happens. When you pick up that German eight inch chef's knife, it's heavy. When you pick up the global, it's like you've got a piece of paper in your hand. Now, not only is it much lighter, um, they come razor sharp. The Japanese, they know how to put on an edge, cutting all that sushi and all that. They can put an edge on a knife, I think, like nobody else. Um, and those global knives are definitely engineered different. Now, I'm going to give you one more analogy. When you split firewood, you've got your piece of uh, your round of wood sitting on the ground. You take the wedge. The wedge is tapped into the wood. The very uh, tip of the wedge is narrow. And then as you start banging the thing with your maul, it gets wider and wider as it goes into the, the wood, and then eventually it splits. Now, when you're using a knife, a lot of the same theories are at play. And if you think of something like a carrot, which is very hard, when you push down on a carrot with a knife, um, the sharp edge is going to pierce, and then as it goes down, the knife gets a little wider. Um, it's going to eventually force that carrot to split but it takes quite a bit of force because the thickness of the knife at the top is much different than at the bottom. Now, I know this sounds like technical mumbo-jumbo, but if you take a Wusthof knife and you cut through a carrot and you take a global knife and you cut through the carrot and they're both factory sharp, you're going to find that the global knife will go through uh, with less force and it's much lighter. So the the feel of those knives is very good. Now, you mentioned your wife um, in your question that the both of you, you know, are wondering what you should get, I'm going to assume that she's going to do some cooking. Now, I can guarantee you she's going to like the feel of those lightweight Japanese knives, uh, even some of the ceramic Japanese knives, better than a big, clunky, heavy, heavy German knife. So 
That gives you an idea of some of the differences in these knives. And I do like those thin-bladed knives. Now, they're not as rugged. You're not going to be whacking chicken bones up with a, you know, a global knife. That's a good way to break it. Um, but, you know, everyday use, a knife like that is going to go through very hard vegetables very easily, slicing tomatoes, onions, all that. It's going to be a breeze. And those knives are very high quality. Now, another brand that I've got a lot of experience with is Cutco. That's an American brand out of Olean, New York. I think for about two years I served on their culinary advisory board. And um, with that, they sent me lots of knives. So I did one of my uh, TV series uh, using their knives. Now, they're good knives, and they tend to be pretty heavy-duty as well. And they have a very... Uh, thick top, and I can't. I know um, there's a lot of knife makers out there, and you're probably screaming that uh, I don't even know or I can't remember the uh, exact. You know, there's the bolster and the tip and all that, and the heel, but the the top of the blade is uh, very thick on those those Cutco knives. They don't have as much elegance. They're not as um, they're just heavy duty knives, and they're nice and sharp. And the great thing about Cutco and something to to consider is they will, they give you a lifetime sharpening guarantee. As long as you own the knife, you can box it up, send it to them, and they will um, they'll ship they'll, they'll sharpen it and ship it back to you. And they don't. I'm not sure if they charge for the return freight. They may not, um, but don't quote me on that. I know they don't charge for the sharpening, and that's something that people don't uh, understand. You can uh, like when I when I was in Florida, I had. I took a bunch of knives down, and a guy at the beach was sharpening knives. I figured out what the hell. I'll let the guy take a shot at it. This guy had no idea what he was doing. My knives, they were sharp for one day. I mean, he just did not do a good job. So professional sharpening is another thing. If you're going to spend money on the knives, it's definitely worth it, you know, maybe every six or eight months to have them professionally sharpened. Now, I definitely recommend having a um, a sharpening stone and a steel as well. And a steel is not a sharpener. That's a straightener. But there, we'll talk about that later. So I mentioned a couple brands there, Wustoff, Global, Cutco. Uh, there's another Japanese brand, Shun, S-H-U-N. Those are pretty good brands. Now, in the $250 price range, you're not going to get a 50-piece set. And you don't need a 50-piece set. What I would recommend uh, starting out is a 8-inch chef's knife, uh, a good 4-inch paring knife, maybe a 6-inch utility knife, and you always want to have um, a good serrated knife, and maybe an extra one would be like a fillet knife if you if you do any stuff with fish or that sort of thing. But you don't need 62 different knives. Now, my Cutco set, I mean, there's so many knives in there, but generally... Uh, the paring knife, and if you can find a paring knife that has a, the shape of a bird's beak, it's called a bird's beak peeler. Those are unbelievable. Makes peeling potatoes so much easier, in my opinion. So if you can find one of those, great. But you don't need 55 knives. You need three or four good ones, and, and at $250, you're definitely in the ballpark. Now, um, I do recommend Amazon. You can find uh, some great deals there, but you have to be careful because there are a lot of people, like you'll find knives that – um, are a little bit different than Global or Shun. They have a similar name, but those are usually going to come from China, and you have to watch out for that Chinese stuff because it is not well-made. So you want to stick with the brand names with these knives at all costs. But those are a few that I recommend, and um, they tend to put out 
High quality knives. They'll stay sharp for a good long time. Now it's definitely, uh, in your best interest to learn how to care for knives. Um, and that means you don't take the knives and put them inside of a drawer. And this drives me crazy. Oh, where are the knives? Oh, they're in that drawer. You open the drawer. There's like 10 knives just piled on top. They also never go into the bottom of the sink. They also never cut things on a ceramic plate. You need a good cutting board is the, the second best investment after the knives because you want to uh, preserve your edge. But when you get done um, using your knives, and I do this every day when I cook, when I get done using the knives, that's the first thing I do. Like when the food, if I don't need a knife anymore, I'll go over to the sink, hot soapy water, I'll clean the knife, dry it. It either goes back into my knife block or up on my magnet, and you don't want to put it on the magnet wet because it will rust. So that the knives get processed immediately. They're never left in the sink. You don't put them inside of a bowl or inside of a um, you know a pot in the sink because you're, you're going to wreck them that way. So do take care of them once you get them. But for $250, Ryan, you can definitely get yourself a good pair of knives. Now, I went really long here, but I wanted to give you a detailed response. I hope it helped. Um, thanks so much for all you guys and gals out there. And if you want to check out my spices or sauces, just go to Amazon.com, Harvest Eating Spices, Thoughtful Harvest Sauces. You'll find them on there. Jack, thanks so much for what you do. Take care. It's interesting that Chef Keith and I have a lot of brands that we actually really like in common. Uh, J.A. Hankel's Cutco and Shun. I own knives by all of those companies, and I'm going to tell you the knives I own from them. And I actually have links to them on Amazon in the show notes, so you can know exactly what I'm talking about and not have to worry about knockoff brands and stuff like that. And once you understand, like if you want a different knife from the same company, once you see the company, then you know you can buy any knife from that company and you're looking at the right one. Um, first of all, thanks to Patrick Rohrman at MT Knives, I have become a knife snob. You know, when you, when you have a $500 belt knife made by an artisan that performs at a level that you didn't even know a knife performed at, you know, five years ago, I didn't know what a true high performance knife was. And, and, and these knives I'm about to give you are amazing kitchen knives. They are not to that quality, but they're not 500 bucks. And these are knives that sell for one to two hundred dollars. So 250 bucks. Personally, this is what I would do. I might save up a little bit more, and I would start off with a Santuco and a chef's knife. I use those two knives more than any other knives in my kitchen. If you want a fillet knife for fish. Until you have more money to buy a good one, go out and buy a, a $10 Fiskars and, and learn how to use a sharpening steel. And when it, when it won't take an edge anymore from a sharpening steel, throw it the hell away and buy another $7 one. You're not going to use a, a, a fillet knife that often anyway. And it'll do a lot of little detail work and stuff like that for you. Learn how to use a steel. I completely agree with Chef Keith. Um, I like to keep my knives on magnetic strips on the wall. And when you put them down, you put the spine back into the knife down first and lay it over onto the strip. You don't just slap it up there because then it nails the edge of the knife a lot of times on you. So that's a little uh, upkeep on there. Um, Cutco, I own a butcher's knife as well, a, a front-swept butcher's knife, uh, classic profile. I do not recommend that for people to use for cutting things up on a cutting board. I recommend that for people taking meat apart, doing butchering work that are familiar with knives and know how to use them. That upswept end of a butcher's knife, my wife, because she won't listen to me, has twice cut the hell out of her thumb using that knife. A chef's knife and a Santoko knife 
have that front. The, the Santuga has that kind of beveled front, and the chef's knife comes to a point, and it's a lot less likely to get you as you're cutting through something and poke you. It might poke you, but it's not going to hit you with the edge of the blade and open you up, which, again, my wife's done twice because she doesn't like listening to me. Um, so the Shun chef's knife has replaced my Cutco as my favorite chef's knife. The Shun is a... It is, it is a Damascus-style knife. It is a true Damascus, but it's overlaid on VG-10 steel. So it's a VG-10 stainless steel Japanese core with a really pretty Damascus overlay, and it is a beautiful knife. But pretty doesn't make performance, but this thing performs beautifully. I have a link in the show notes. Mike, I love Cutco knives. Patrick Horman hates Cutco knives. I think he hates their business model of people going door-to-door selling them, but... Um, my family has used Cutco knives. I remember being a little kid in my grandmother's kitchen, and she had knives that she kept in a little slot between the countertop and the wall, There's a, and they just slid in there. It was a perfect place to keep them. And I, I know that handle. Like, you see that Cutco handle? It's very distinctive. Uh, I like the way that handle feels. Some people don't. And I remember one time I scored a Cutco butcher's knife, a Cutco slicing knife and a Cutco chef knife for three bucks a piece at a flea market. They had the edges pretty much taken off of them. They were stuffed in. All the knives in this green thing were, were three bucks. And I didn't even look at the other ones. I was like 14 years old, man. I grabbed all three of them and uh, we sent them off to Cutco and they sharpened them. So that's, that's a nice thing going for Cutco, professional sharpening. You send them in, they send them back sharpened. Um, and it doesn't matter where you got them either. They're that way. So I, I like Cutco knives. Um, but the Shun is a much more hyper for the VG10 steel is, is amazing. Um, so much so that I plan to buy, uh, a Shun Santoko knife because I, I find myself using that smaller, uh, Santoko Cutco a lot. I like the straight edge. I like it for chopping. I like the way you, instead of just using the handle, so you kind of grab up onto the blade itself between the thumb and the forefinger for chopping things. I, I find both of those knives relatively safe to use, but I find the Santoko a lot of, safer of a knife. And it's just one of those things I haven't sprung off and bought yet, that second one, because I have a good one in the Cutco. Um, but what I like about having kind of that approach, i got two high-quality knives, and if I have to send one away for professional sharpening, because Patrick hasn't been here to do it for me lately, um, I, I still have a set. And again, I'm not saying it'll do everything you need, but a chef and a Santoko will do... 90% of your daily cooking and do it really well. The last thing I want to add, though, the, the thing that I see people don't invest in is quality steak knives. And um, you don't have to spend a lot of money to get what I consider a pretty high-quality steak knife. J.A. Hinkles makes a four-piece steak knife set that's 20 bucks. If you buy it and you only use it for cutting steaks... You'll probably have them for 10 years, and they'll still cut a steak beautifully. Uh, they are a fine-tooth serration, and they've got a really nice profile, a really nice, well-built handle. They are not a super high-end knife. If they were, they'd be 100 bucks a piece. But for 20 bucks, they're the best that I've found. Um, I, I'm more than happy to serve guests with them. Uh, I use them all the time. We have some cheap steak knives, and my wife doesn't want to throw them away. And every time I, you know... Go to get one of my good knives out of the drawer. I see the cheap one. I just pitch one until they're going to be all gone soon. Hopefully she won't listen to today's show and figure it out. Um, but uh, 
I, I really recommend a set of those. That's something I'm actually going to, we have four of them. I'm going to pick up a second set of those because that'll let me uh, throw out all the rest of the chunk steak knives. So I, I think they are a really great uh, thing to pick up as well. The next two I'm going to play back-to-back for you. They're going to be the last two of the show. And then I have one more thing to uh, kind of clean up from some follow-up this week and some closing thoughts for you. But I thought it would be interesting to get two different approaches to this question. This question is for Doc Bones. It's from Allen in Texas. He wants to know about uh, arthritis and joint pain and gout and foods to avoid and supplements to help. And I thought, this sounds like a great one for Gary Collins, too. So I said, hey, Gary, would you take a look at it? So I'm going to play um, Joe, Dr. Bones, Joe Alton, MD's response to this question. And then I'm just going to immediately follow up with Gary Collins coming from more of a, you know, a nutrition standpoint and see what's common and what's different and get two different takes on a very interesting question. And arthritis, gout, conditions like this are things that plague us all as we get older especially if we don't, you know, see to our, 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 our physical conditioning and our diets and things like that. So with that, hey, Doc Bones, and then followed by Gary Collins, let's, let's take a look at this important subject. Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster, and the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Alan in Texas, wants to know about joint pain, arthritis, and gout. There's a lot of manual labor involved in making a homestead out of my eight acres. My right shoulder, and especially my elbows, have arthritis and sometimes makes hard work very painful. I'm 59 years old, but still in good health, save for the occasional gout flare-up. Alan, our bodies are a miracle of engineering. They really are. But like any machine, we have moving parts that wear out with use. At your age, you could certainly have muscle pain. But your shoulders and elbows might also have arthritis, osteoarthritis, a deterioration of joints that comes with age that can also occur as a result of injuries. Homesteading is a lot of work, and you probably can't rest your aching joints very long without getting things out of hand at your retreat. That's a shame because rest is probably what they need. Of course, while modern technology is available, you should have my suspicion of osteoarthritis confirmed by x-ray at your local hospital. Since you have gout, there's always a possibility that it's a factor, although gout usually affects the feet. Now, for those who don't know, gout is a condition that inflames joints and even destroys them by depositing uric acid crystals in them. Once you've confirmed that it's osteoarthritis, you might consider taking anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen on a regular basis to cool the joint down. Doctors can also inject steroids directly in joints to give relief. Now, if you're looking for natural relief, though, a capsaicin cream or an arnica salve can certainly help, although you'll need to apply them pretty regularly. Use moist, warm compresses to help with stiffness, especially in the morning. Now, various glucosamine supplements, our popular glucosamine sulfate preparations, have more evidence for their effectiveness than glucosamine hydrochloride. Take about 1,500 milligrams once a day on a regular basis, paired with chondroitin sulfate. Chondroitin sulfate, 800 to 1,200 milligrams a day. This combo has been shown to possibly slow progression of some arthritis conditions. Now, to control your gout, lifestyle, and dietary changes may be helpful. Avoid alcohol. 
reduce how many uric acid elevating foods you eat. Now, these include liver, red meat, herring, sardines, anchovies, kidney, beans, peas, mushrooms, asparagus, and cauliflower. And for goodness sake, avoid fatty foods. There's a lot more to all this than that, but it's a good start to get you feeling better. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins again, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today I'm going to take a stab at a question that was asked to Doc Bones about joint pain, arthritis, and gout. And this individual suffers from the some uh, sore joints, some arthritis, and occasional flare-up of gout. And the gout is what keyed me in, and I want to talk about that first because that, I think, is the answer to his question. Gout is a overabundance of uric acid in the blood. Uric acid is a natural byproduct. So in the blood, there's there's nothing wrong with it. It's when it gets elevated when it becomes a problem. You don't want it too low. You don't want it too high. When it gets too high, it will crystallize. And when it crystallizes, it tends to like to crystallize in your joints. And it becomes very painful. And we're... Most people will find it starts is in your big toe. It likes to, to start in what they call cold joints. And obviously your feet get cold quicker than the rest of your body, your hands. So that's where you're going to notice it. But they have found that your big toe is where it's kind of the, the giveaway that you're getting ready to have a gout flare up. Now, gout is interesting in the fact that it's also found primarily in males, so 90% male, and also primarily in people who are considered obese. There's a really good factor why this is so, uh, not to the male side, but to the obese side, which I like to focus in on. One of the main culprits of gout and obesity is the overconsumption of fructose. Fructose is fruit sugar. Sugar from fruit, and you're going, oh, wait, Gary, now I thought fruit was paleo and primal. Yeah, but remember high fructose corn syrup, the turbocharged sugar that we find in all of our foods, because fructose is processed completely differently than other sugars in our body, has to primarily be processed through the liver and doesn't have the same uh, reaction in the blood, so you don't get the elevated glucose markers that you will get with other types of sugars. So with that, it's a it's a tricky sugar in the sense that they used it and it was great because no one was getting sugar spikes and they're pounding you know putting it in everything they still do. It's in lunch meat, ketchup, toothpaste, uh, yogurts. I mean, I've seen it in everything. You know, it's literally if you pick up a food item, one of the first ingredients is high fructose corn syrup. You know, Coke, soda pop, it's everywhere. So what's happened is we've overconsumed it. Well, what the problem with fructose is, is that it, it like, it turbocharges fat storage. And that makes sense. But because think about it, if you are going to fatten yourself up for winter and just like bears do, they'll go find a lot, they find a lot of berries, they eat everything, but they really like berries is fruit will fatten you up, uh, like up to 40 times other normal sugar. So that's interesting in the sense that He's suffering from gout, which makes me, says he was primarily healthy, but I wonder what he's eating. That tells me maybe he could simply be overeating fruit, drinking a lot of fruit juice, um, maybe Cokes, who knows? Uh, it could be a lot of things. But with that, that tells me that there's something 
that gout tells me there's a little something else going on. And when you eat the standard American diet and consume too much sugar, increased oxidation, inflammation. Remember, inflammations are killer. That's what's getting us, primarily through the overconsumption of processed foods containing sugar, lots of sugar. So the thing is, for foods to avoid, one of these jacks is going to absolutely hate me for. But believe it or not, even though it's paleo, is if you're a gout sufferer, you should be careful with red meat. Um, if you're suffering from gout or going through a bout of gout, I would remove all red meat uh, and actually reduce your meat consumption during that gout flare-up. Um, eat more vegetables. That will help. But obviously, high fructose corn syrup. you got to watch out for the processed foods. Have to. Even if you think they're healthy, pick up that label and read it. That's a great part about eating food that only you raise, grow, um, is it doesn't come with a label. You know what's in it. Uh, be careful with your fruit consumption. There are many fruits that can be higher in the fructose levels than others. I won't go into it. There's a huge list. Uh, I think if I remember right, I think one of the highest is figs, if I remember right. But um, I love figs, but obviously you don't eat them. They're loaded with sugar. So you should consume about 25 grams or less a day of fructose. That's the general rule. Some people can consume more without a problem, but that's just the general rule for most. So you can look at some charts to see. Uh, consuming, you know, obviously too much fruit, but so one to two pieces of fruit a day is usually fine. Uh, if you're a gout sufferer, go, like I said, check the chart. Here's Jack's going to be favorite, beer. Uh, they have found that the yeast in beer reacts with the ingredients in beer and triggers high uh, uric acid. It just triggers it. They, it just turbocharged. So that makes sense because what do we find with people who consume too many processed foods? Primarily, they contain a lot of fructose today. Bellies. They have beer, what we call beer bellies. Well, if you consume too much beer, what do you have? You have a beer belly. So there's people who we call skinny fat that are skinny, but they have these little Buddha bellies. And remember me talking about in, in, in several questions I've answered is that main measurement is your around your hips and your waist. That is the, 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 especially the one around your belly button, around your upper right there. That will determine your health. I mean, it's a simple one, but it is the one they have found is the most constant indicator of poor health. So this does make sense. Uh, you know, and, and think of something as simple as agave syrup. We've been told it's really healthy and because, you know, it's all from a plant. No problem, right? Piece of cake. Yeah. Um, problem is it's 80% fructose. So you have to be really careful. And so even though I'm not saying never consume agave syrup, I'm just saying you have to, if you're a gout sufferer, you have to be hypersensitive. Look, you have to really look at things. Uh, some of the things that can help. These are one of the main things for gout sufferers is they say to eat cherries because they're high in antioxidants and they, and it just works really well. Um, there's, you know, the simplest way is removing the culprits instead of looking for foods that are going to help it because usually you're going to eat these foods to counteract the bad foods that you're already consuming. Instead, it's easier to remove those bad foods that I just went through and part of the diet. The paleo diet's great, except for obviously the red meat part if you're a gout sufferer. So you want to be careful with the red meat. But the supplements I like, uh, you guys know turmeric. been taking it and selling it for a long time. It's, it's an amazing, amazing herb. 
and highly, very good with anti-inflammatory effects. It's, it's kind of got a lot of different functions. It also helps with, uh, blood sugar regulation, but it works fantastic for joint pain and just overall inflammation. And Jack's talked about it as well. Uh, omega-3 fish oil. Uh, if you're eating the typical American diet, you have way too many omega-6s, which omega-6s are essential fatty acid. We need them, but too much causes inflammation. So we need that ratio improved. And so omega-3s also help with uh, joint inflammation. So works great. Vitamin C is a perfect one, one of the most powerful antioxidants you can find. Uh, less than 2,000 milligrams a day, though, is what I recommend. If you start taking too much vitamin C or intaking it through food, uh, when you're dealing with gout, it actually inhibits your b- body's ability to excrete uric acid. So be careful with that. Glucosamine chondroit. I've taken this uh, for joint pain back in the day. I use it actually on my pets, uh, older pets. It has worked. We're using it with my mom's dog right now. And it, excellent for joint pain, but remember, it takes about four to six weeks to kick in. So you have to give it some time. And it also has been known to help rebuild some of the joint tissue and cartilage. So it works pretty amazingly. Uh, ginger. Ginger is often overlooked very uh, powerful anti-inflammatory and it helps with digestion. And if you're a gout sufferer and you're suffering about at that time, take potassium. They have found that numerous people suffering from gout are potassium deficient, but also that's pretty much every American eating a standard American diet too. So I hope that helps. I didn't want to get out in the weeds too far with the list, but uh, I would recommend him taking a, a reanalyzing his diet if he's suffering from gout, that tells me there's something else going on, or he could be, you know, having a couple beers every night and that could be part of the problem as well. Again, if you have any uh, questions, hit the comment section and uh, we'll talk to you later. Now, what I actually really like about the contrast in those answers, and this is nothing negative about Doc Bones. Again, Bones and Amy are close personal friends of ours. But when you look at things from the angle of an MD, you often look at how to fix them or mitigate them more than you look at all of the things that cause them, a more holistic look. And, you know, Doc Bones is a doctor that's very open to herbals and things like that. Amy's huge into that, his his wife, Nurse Amy, um, and, and really understands those components as well. And understands the components of nutrition far better than most MDs. And still there's a more hammer-nail approach. Where when you take something coming from a world of full-on understanding of nutrition and overall health and wellness, what I would say is Gary takes a more holistic and somewhat deeper approach to understanding how to deal with this and more of patient heal, heal thyself of an approach. Um, so, and I don't disagree with anything Gary said about, you know, if you have gout, I mean, alcohol, especially beer can be an issue and you notice that's something they had in common and, and fat, especially bad fats, right? And I don't mean animal fat, I mean like bad animal fats. I think there's a lot to do with that. I don't think these, these conditions were very much a problem before the days of CAFOs. Uh, it's so much being dietarily related anyway. Uh, especially gout, uh, you know, more than, than arthritis. So arthritis is something that we have different versions of. 
I will deal with arthritis in my right shoulder. Because as by the time I was in my 20s, I had what you call bursitis, which means it's basically like arthritis, but it's from physical damage. And there's only so much you can do to heal things. I have a, my scapula actually rubs against my back ribs, uh, not just from a, a injury to the shoulder, which is what the Army told me, but it took years to figure out there was actually a rib fracture, a rear rib fracture that caused that. So that's, that's a mechanical issue that will, you know, as I get older and deal with, you know, just regular things will be something I'll have to chronically address. And then there's arthritis that's very much dietary related. And then there's some that's just, you get old, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of these different things. My, my wife has neck pain from injury, a neck injury. Uh, so some of these are completely just biological problems and some of them are biological mechanical problems or mechanical problems aggravated biology. And it's a complicated thing. So I just thought it'd be cool to get two totally different takes and see the similarities and not so much the differences, but the different approach. And both of them quite valid and quite accurate. Uh, I want to finish off today, talk a little bit about understanding each other and conflict resolution like I did in uh, the front. So yesterday I did a follow-up that I'm now doing a, a tertiary follow-up, a third-level follow-up with a guy named Mike in West Virginia The day before yesterday, we did a show on bullying, and he wasn't pleased with the answers Trevor Grice gave because they didn't really tell us how do we fix, how do we stop the bully right now? Like, what do I do right now to stop this if it's my kid or somebody I care about? And, and I kind of did a follow-up and said, because it doesn't work that way. There is no macro-level solution to this. Dorothy and I have for years, it's like seven years we were talking about it, we've, we've like, what could we do? And we had this concept that maybe it is the leaders in the school, self-policing, the football players, the cheerleaders, and things like that. If you could actually make it basically uncool to be a bully. You know, I, I think there's something there, but I don't know that I have the bandwidth to get something like that done. But in the end, my, my, my concern is for the victim more than the bully. And, you know, counseling for that victim is more about getting them through the situation, helping them deal with it, helping them cope with it, because there's only so much we can do to actually stop bullying, if, we, if we're honest about it. And I got pretty passionate about it, and I want to share something before I read Mike's follow-up now that he heard that response, and basically an apology from him. Uh, I mentioned that I have a friend who's lost his son. I also had a friend in high school He was the kind of guy you like. You always hang out with in school, but you never hang with outside of school, ever. I mean, you just don't. It's just like that kind of thing. Like you live on different sides of town, and I spent most of my time actually in the, the, a, a totally different little town where my grandparents were. And you know, he spent most of his time over on the other side of, of, of the town that we were going to school together in. But when we were in school, like we were really, really cool with each other. And uh, he. Uh, He got along really well with about half of the people in the school and, and not so much with the other. He was that 50-50 kid, you know. And uh, But I always thought he'd be all right, and I never thought he really had a lack of friends. He seemed like he had a lot of friends, but he was picked on. He had plenty of people have his back, but he was picked on. He was made fun of. And uh, uh, two days before my senior year, and we had, you know, last day of school, junior year, talked about, you know, coming back and, and, and graduating and things like that. Two days before my... Uh, senior year, and my father says, do you, do you know this this person, you know? I said, yeah, why? He said, he's in the paper. He, he died. And this, this doesn't make any sense. This is a, a young kid, you know. What? 
And by the time we got to school, the, everybody knew the total story. He had taken a gun, put it in his mouth, and blew the back of his head off. So, yeah, I'm worried about helping the person cope more than, you know, beating up the bully or, or whatever it is. Because that's something we can only do so, we can only intervene so much without making the problem worse. We, we talked about it on the show. But I want to read what Mike's response was. Jack, I did not expect you to read my comment on the show, but I'm glad you did. It made me see that my problem with you and Trevor is simply a misunderstanding. I'm coming from a perspective of how do we stop the bully, while you and Trevor are coming from the angle of how do we help the victim. Now I see that. Your way makes more sense. It's easier to teach a person once, once to deal with a bully instead of stopping every bully out there. I don't know why I didn't see this when I listened to the show, but since you read my comment on the and re your response on the air, it became clear to me that we were after different goals, both well-intentioned, by the way. I thought the show would be about how to stop the bully, but you guys were trying to keep the victim from incurring emotional damage. And now that I see that, I have to admit that counseling and a summer with Grandpa are totally viable solutions. While they don't keep the bully from beating your ass, they do help you deal with it so you don't commit suicide. I see that now. That's why I kept saying that Trevor offered no real solution. He wasn't offering a way to stop the bully. I think he was a little bit, all right, in some levels. He was offering a solution for the emotional well-being of the victim. I get it now. I got a totally different impression from your reply to my comment when I heard you read it on the air. It sounded hostile to me in text, but when I heard you read it, it sounded much more reasonable. I think it's hard to convey emotion through text, and I think some of the meaning lost the way is lost that way. Conversely, my comment sounded hostile on the air, which was not what I intended in writing. I was not trying to demean Trevor's profession. I meant, I meant my jabs at him about being a shrink in much of the friendlier way, like a couple of guys ripping on each other over a few beers. Uh, or asking a car salesman, don't you want to sell me some undercoating? Unfortunately, that is uh, hard to convey in text. I will go back to my original comment. Apologize to Trevor. I didn't mind to sound like an asshole. I'm sorry for raising your blood pressure. Since you read my original comment on the air, I feel a need to redeem myself. So can you please read this response as well? I don't need that much biocarbon at 50,000 TSP listeners thinking Mike in West Virginia is a douchebag. I don't think you're a douchebag, Mike. I think you're a good guy. And, and you know, some of our exchange in text was because I knew you weren't getting it. And I was trying to get you to see it. And that's why I read it on the air. So I also want to say Mike didn't get my blood pressure up. This subject gets my blood pressure up because I know of two people that were important to me that are dead today because of it. And I know what that's like. I know what that's like. And I don't want it for anybody else. I, I do this show to help you guys survive life, not just disasters. And it's hard to do. And I'll tell you another thing that I'm always concerned about for couples is surviving as a couple. And the, 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 the fundamental reality is when a couple loses a child, their odds of divorce are astronomically higher. So especially to something like suicide where both, no matter what they say, will feel on some level, I could have done more. And therefore, they project that onto the partner and think the partner could have done more, even if they don't know they're doing it. And they become very angry with each other. They don't listen to each other. They don't understand each other. Just like Mike and I, not understanding each other. And there's two two-way street here. It, it's me, too. Like, not understanding what he wasn't getting. Well, not understanding why he wasn't understanding. 
Because I'm like, dude, we talked about what to do for an hour and a half, and these are very viable solutions, and you're here going, there was no solution given. Well, I didn't fully understand what he was coming at. I actually did, but I didn't get why he didn't get it, right? I didn't get, I knew he was like going, well, what do we do to stop the bully? Like, you, On some levels, we're telling you the truth, dude. You can't stop every bully. But I didn't really get like how fired up he was on that particular subject. And his, his, what I think it was is there was a belief in there somewhere that there is an answer to that question. There is an answer to that question. And I think there's an answer to that question, but I think every single situation is different. And I do think we have to acknowledge something that some of you aren't going to like. When a, when a person is picked on, chronically, especially when it's not a person, like even if you separate them, you move them to a new place, then that person's picked on by a totally different bully. There's a reason. There's a reason. It could be because of the way they carry themselves. It could be because of the way they interact with others. It could be because they are just different enough to kind of evoke the air. It could be, it's often in, in cases with school that there is, because I know that my life radically changed in my freshman year of high school with kind of my place in the pack, so to speak. I am one of those kids that with an August birthday that was at the exactly right at the cutoff, like it would have been real easy to just let me start school a year later. So there's a lot of kids in your class that are almost a full year older than you. And when you're like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, a year's a lot. If you're under 10, a year is more than 10% of your life and therefore your growth and development. So I was kind of this little kid all through school. And then I had that summer where you go into your teens and all of a sudden you're 14 with a little bit of muscle on and went to football camp, that type of thing, and all of a sudden things are different, right? Um, so I, I, I kind of understand that's, that's the kind of thing. So it's not when I say that, it's not always they did something wrong because I know people get real touchy on that. But sometimes it is things they're doing wrong. There's, there's kids that don't understand how to interact with other kids. Kids, as an Aspie, I can tell you, kids that lack empathy. And therefore, you're hurtful to other people and you don't know you are. And then when they're hurtful back to you, you're like, what the hell did I do? So there's, there's a lot there that sometimes counseling helps that, that child learn not just to deal with and process, but maybe how to communicate better so that they can avoid at least some of the problems. Because what people say, well, nobody should be bullied. I completely agree. But this, this isn't fantasy land. But I, I guarantee you, if you can take a kid and say it can be as bad as it is now, or only half as bad, they'll take half as bad quick. So sometimes that can help. But the bigger lesson here is understanding each other. And the reality is we're not going to solve the problems in this world until the sides that are polarized start to understand each other, until the hatred can be put away. Because it's literally palpable hatred. Again, I mean, you can just look at Facebook and see it. Either side talks about the other side like all of those people are just completely vile pieces of shit. They call people they've never met before names over political issues with no attempt to understand each other. And, and here's the thing. What, what people will say, to a, to a degree being correct, is they don't want to understand me either. Okay. Seek first to understand if you wish to be understood. See... Over the years, I moved from kind of 
libertarian-leaning Republican that voted for Republican candidates and thought I was doing my civic duty and I was a soldier and I prior military experience and I believed in the Constitution and smaller government. That's what Republicans said they were going to give me to realizing they're full of crap and going to full-on libertarian. But my evolution from libertarian to anarchy allowed me to do something that even the evolution to libertarian didn't fully allow me to do. Becoming a libertarian allowed me to look at left issues, if you want to call them that, pro-left issues, that were social in nature versus fiscal in nature, and say to myself, why do I care if some guy gets stoned? Why do I care if two dudes or two chicks get married? I don't. I really don't. Now that I realize that that is the case, I don't want to be attached to those things anymore. When somebody says, but this guy's a good conservative candidate, I'm like, ugh. Well, what are you going to vote for, a Democrat? Ugh. No. Neither one, right? So what, what, what doing that did, because I fully understood the conservative viewpoint fiscally, and I fully understood the, the left viewpoint, the, the liberal viewpoint socially, and starting to realize, okay, if these people on this side actually have a better viewpoint on these things, And those people on that side actually have a better viewpoint on these other things. They both must have good reasons for, for the stuff that they disagree about. And you start to understand what's going on, and most of it's fear. Most of it's fear. The number one reason conservatives are against gay marriage is fear. What will happen to the family? Well, unless you're gay, nothing. Right? If, if gay marriage affects your marriage, one of you guys are gay. Sorry. Or both of you. Okay? But it's fear. And it's a fear campaign that the people in power use to keep you divided. I, I mentioned capitalism. I understand something that I've only understood now for maybe two years. That capitalism does not mean the same thing to socialists and liberals as it does to conservatives and republicans it doesn't they're, they're arguing about a system and they don't understand each other and the word the word itself doesn't mean the same thing to again whenever i talk about these divisions there's two types there's the political ass clown theater the people in charge I'm usually not talking about them. I'm talking about the people that hate each other on the street, the people that mock each other, the people that, that degrade each other, okay? You, and whatever level you stratify into this, and the person opposed to you is what I'm talking about. The left-leaning person that opposes capitalism, when they say capitalism, they don't mean your business, Now, I un see, you got to seek to be understood. I know your objection already. But it always is going to end up attacking my business yet. But you, you need to understand the other person's thinking so that you can actually communicate why there's a problem with their thinking to them and how it will affect you and them negatively. Right? So, and they have to do the same thing. Hard to do because people don't want to let go. But when they say capitalism, what they mean is actually controlling the capital. In other words, the oligarchs, the technocrats, the people that actually print and control the money, the Federal Reserve, the member banks thereof, and the, the, the giant elitist 
corporate entities that either control or have unlimited access to the capital at the expense of everyone because printing money and multiplying money sucks value from the existing money. Okay? That's who they, and you know what? Everybody on the right that actually understands monetary creations hates those people too. You hate the same people and you're using different words. Now what the, the people on the left don't understand is all of the proposed solutions by the left to fix that problem won't do anything at all, infinity, to address the actual problem. The wealthy in all of the solutions, including from a democratic socialist like Bernie Sanders, involve taxing people and redistributing wealth of people that you might consider wealthy, but they are not elitists. They are not the kind of capitalist that people are talking about. Now, there's, there's batshit not crazy people. There's people called, you're a capitalist pig, talking about me. And they do mean my business. These people, you're, you're not ready for a conversation yet. Go away. Go away. Okay? You're as nuts as the extremists on, on, on the right. You, you really are, but bye now. Right? But, if you start, like, so Bernie Sanders' solution, this is a classic example to how do we save Social Security. Well, we raise the cap to half a million dollars and tax the wealthy people so they pay their fair share. Hold on. This is so millionaires and billionaires pay their fair share of Social Security? Really? So there's a lot of people that make, let's say, $225,000 a year. That's what they make. Those people are upwardly mobile. You might consider them affluent, wealthy, high-end middle class, but they're not rich. Now, they can become rich by saving and investing their money over time, But just making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year does not make you rich. It doesn't make you Donald Trump. It doesn't make you that upper level. Remember the people we both hate? It doesn't get you in that club. You are not in that club at that income level. That person's tax on Social Security just doubled. It doubled. On every dollar they earn with the Bernie Sanders solution. That does not tax billionaires. It doesn't. The billionaire is going to pay himself out of his company, and his company is going to pay all of his taxes anyway. You don't understand how it works. So if you want to say somebody who's actually rich, somebody with an income of, let's say, a million dollars a year, if you and again, I'm not for any of these taxes. But I'm, I'm going to propose how you could, act, if you if you were genuine that you wanted to tax the actual wealthy, then what you would say is, right now, see, I, maybe some people don't know this. You only pay Social Security tax, and your employer only matches it, or you match it yourself, up to a cap. And I don't know what that cap is right now, but it's somewhere just south of $120,000. So if you make $150,000, that next $30,000, you don't pay Social Security tax on it. See? It's capped. It stops. So what Bernie wants to do, let's raise that to a half a million so rich people pay their share. Okay, the guy making $5 million a year is still only paying or having his company pay his tax on 10% of his income. Where the guy making $250,000 is paying the tax on 100% of his income. You get it? So if you actually wanted to tax the wealthy to fix Social Security, you might do something like this. Lock the cap at $100,000 for all the Joe six-packs. Up to $100,000 you pay into your Social Security program, 
you, you expect to get money when you retire. This is part of the deal. Again, I know, I know it's a Ponzi scheme. I know it's bad. I know it's a failure. I know we should get rid of it. I know we should phase it out. I understand that, but I'm saying this is this is legit. If you were legitimately trying to do it in the system, you would do something like that. So it actually is going to lower taxes for some people from what they have right now. And then you would do it like a slot limit on fish. So there's lakes where you can keep any fish from, let's say, uh, 24 inches to 30 inches. Then you have to let fish go from 30 inches to 36 inches, and you can keep one or two fish at 36 inches and up, right? And that keeps this good breeding middle-class population of fish out there making lots more new fishes, okay? Where if you just set a, a, a limit over a certain size, you end up with a whole bunch of fish that are small. Get it? Pattern recognition. Let it sink in. So what you could do then if you actually wanted to tax these billionaires, you cap Social Security at $100,000, and then you tax 100% of income for Social Security purposes over $500,000 a year. And include all incomes, capital gains, everything. It doesn't matter how you got the money, right? If it's a dividend from your corporation or whatever, you pay it. And that would mean anybody making under under half a million dollars would not be subject to 100% of their tax once they broke the cap. But the people, if you have a half a million dollar year income, and see, that's actual income. That's after deductions and everything. There's your, there's your at least entry-level wealthy people. Well, why won't they do that? Because it's not going to happen. It's not, and there's, there's not enough people in that income bracket for it to work. See, to actually make it work, you have to take money from the middle class. Because there's more of us than everybody else. In the, in the, there's more of us as producers than everybody else. There's starting to be more consumers. But for production, if you want to tax producers, that's where they all are. The wealthy, no matter how much money they actually have, they don't actually earn it every year. People talk about the wealth disparity. The top one half of 1% controls 90, 80, whatever it is, percent of the wealth in the country. But that doesn't mean that it's earned every year to be taxed. It's held. It's held in corporations. It's held as, as, as various different holdings. It doesn't all produce income. They're only taxing the income. So the socialists next step, well, why don't we put a property tax on corporations based on their value? Oh, that'll really destroy the economy. Right? But... In the end, you hate the same people. You agree who the real enemy is. But that enemy is so clever that even though you both dislike the enemy, you hate each other more. And we can't have conversations about this until we're willing to discuss it with each other. There are people on the left that think, well, the only reason anybody's right wing is because they're religious. Let me tell you something, there's a whole lot of people you would call conservative Republican types that have no interest in religion whatsoever. And there's a whole shitload of people on the left that are Bible-thumping born-agains. They're not the majority, but there's tons of them on both sides. Why? Because it doesn't necessarily track 100%. It really doesn't. There's plenty of liberals in churches. So so how do we get past that? Well, at a nation, national level, we don't. We don't. Um, at an individual level, we can. Just like dealing with bullies. Every situation is different. 
instead of arguing about what we disagree with, we, we should first at least understand what are what are your concerns? What are your concerns that you're trying to fix? What are my concerns that I'm trying to fix? Let's understand each other at that level first. Now, what can we agree upon that would help fix the things that we're mutually concerned about? And some people say, nothing. Well, then you're not understanding the other person. And you might find that you have 20 things that you vehemently disagree with. But yet there's four or five that people in general completely agree with. And you'll notice they're the ones that the people in charge never bring up and we never talk about. You can look at it with global warming. It's become incredibly politicized. Incredibly politicized. But if you've actually made the case, you know what? Instead of worrying about whether or not CO2 raises the global temperatures, and if it does, how much it does, and how big a concern that is, how about when we mine coal, we put mercury in the ocean? We should figure out how to stop putting mercury in the ocean. One way might be to figure out how to use less coal. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Anarchists, if you actually frame the issue that way, would say, yeah, you know, that's, yeah, okay, yeah. Also, we put sulfur in the groundwater with coal. It turns the streams orange, takes all the oxygen out of the streams, kills all life in the, in the, in the stream. That's a problem. You know, that's, yeah, that's a problem. But we've gotten to a point now where the extreme right can't even hear about environmental protection. And, and, and it's like, I say, we need to protect the environment. Global warming alarmist. No, I don't believe that either. I'm like you. No, 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 no. When the, when the moderate on any issue can't speak without being attacked from both sides, there is no hope for a solution other than for the moderates to work together independently of everybody else and prove out the solution. That's where we're at today. That's where we are as a people. That's where we are as a society. That is why I am an anarchist. That is why I became a libertarian. Because I realized that the solutions were outside of the system, not inside the system. And that's why I invite you to join me. And I invite you to stop having debates with people you disagree with and have discussions with people you disagree with. Now again, people say, well, Jack, you just say this guy's an idiot or a dumbass or whatever all the time. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not willing to engage in this type of a discussion. You don't have time and energy for such people. They are, they are time and energy vampires. They steal from you. You write them off and you look for people willing to work with you. And you do good shit. That's the big thing. You get shit done and you do good shit. And you inspire other people to get shit done and do good shit. That's how you make a real difference. As I finish up today, I want to play a song for you for your weekend to think about and ponder, again, from Jimmy Buffett. And I love Jimmy Buffett. And I think I've exposed a lot of you guys to a lot of music from him that I bet you didn't know he did. Songs you may have never heard. Everybody knows a couple songs that made it on the radio and what have you. And let's be honest, Jimmy Buffett ain't had a top 40 song for like 30 years or something like that. He's made a lot of great music, though, and... Some of the music the guy does really demonstrates his talent. I mean, people know Margaritaville and, and party music and things like that. Um, but 
a lot of these really deep songs, this this musical poetry, and really an incredible voice and incredible musical talent is, is largely unknown. And this song actually ties in with the subject that we just finished up with, which is needing other people. The song's called Island. They say no man is like you. Sometimes they say you stand all alone. Sometimes I feel that way too. Listen to this song and let it kind of just be a great song to start the weekend with because it's just a song that just makes you feel good. Even though it's actually a deep subject that's actually quite sorrowful. It's pretty music. And you have to realize, you know, there's some other lines in this song I'll give you here so that you actually hear them. I've tried to build bridges, but they all fell down. I've taken to the air on wings of silver, but they always hit the ground. But that doesn't mean you quit trying. It doesn't mean you, you quit seeking to understand, and it doesn't mean that you quit, quit seeking to be understood. And it does mean that the best thing you can do for success is to find people that think the way that you do. And there's hundreds of thousands of us. Reach out online, make connections, and build something worth building. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Island, I see you in the distance. I feel that your existence is not unlike my own. Island, they say no man is like you. They say you stand alone Sometimes I feel that way too It's the need for love Heart and soul accompaniment Seems to make me different from you Well, I tried to book passage But you have no And I tried to sail in, but you went in water Tore my sails and broke my oars Island, I see you in the moonlight Silhouettes of ships in the night Just make me want that much more Island, I see you in all of my dreams Maybe someday I'll have the To reach your distant shores When the need for love Heart and soul accompaniment No longer makes me different from you Well, I try to build bridges But they all fell down And I've taken to the air on wings of silver But I always
Just make me want that much more 